Obesity and diabetes are rampant in Australia and around the Western world at the moment, and my guest today is sick of it. He's an orthopaedic surgeon called Gary Fetke, and Gary got sick of having to amputate feet from diabetic patients who failed to look after their diabetes. He decided to go upstream and give his patients some dietary advice to help them lose weight and control their diabetes. His efforts to look after his patients got him in trouble with the health boards and he had to fight to stay registered as a doctor. It's an amazing story and a really clever bloke. You're going to enjoy having a reset with Gary Fetke. Gary Fetke, is it good being you? I don't have any choice, mate. That's, that's the standard answer, I think. It's good. No, but I mean... Um... I, I, I learned this a book. Or I read something or other in the last year or so about the definition of maturity, which I don't know if I'll ever get to. But I, I quite like the maturity when the ability to learn to say the word no. Right. That you've actually defined a whole lot of parameters in your life that you actually say, "No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to go there." Rather, than a lot of you know the, the majority of us actually spend our time going, "Yes, I'll do that. I'll incorporate that. I'll add that extra bit into life. I'll, I'll fit the madness in." But when you actually learn to say no, I went. I'm pretty cool with that. Yeah, nice. Do you feel like you've learned to say no now? Yes. Yeah. What <laughs> what sort of things might have you, you said yes to this podcast? So, uh, what sort of things um, will elicit a no from you? If it doesn't fit into my time management, if it doesn't fit into, um, uh, to be fair, I think you reached out a couple of years ago, and it was right in the midst of a whole lot of other. You know, we can use four letter words that were flapping around, and I apologise for not getting back to you. No problem at all. Um, but. Um, what I've learned is that there's an enormous message to go out to the people, whether or not it's right or wrong. I've, you know, I've got a public health message. So if we can push that out in whatever forum and timeframes, it sort of fit in with whatever we can do. And I've, I'm on a few other projects at the moment, which are quite foreign for an orthopedic surgeon to be even considering, but it's quite interesting to actually, I've, I've got this career as an orthopedic surgeon and I've been practicing surgery for over 30, 30 years now. I'm 85, by the way, I'm getting older. Yeah, you're doing all right. Low carb, all right, let's get back to it. <laughs> when I, I actually looked at all, just recently did a number crunch on my podcasts, uh, not my podcasts, on my YouTube videos and what's been seen of my lectures online. Mm-hmm. And then I extrapolated that back to actually consulting and seeing patients one-on-one, operating all of that. Right, so over when 30 I did, years. Well, well, no, but for 30 years. So I've been consulting 30 years, you know, full-time, all that sort of thing. Yeah. I then took just my videos on YouTube, forget podcasts and, you know, Twitter and social media and all that sort of thing, and I worked it out. I've done somewhere between 800 and 1,000 years of full-time consulting. (laughs) Right. I think it's really important to be in the space which you and I are in it right now, which is actually having a message and taking it beyond that one-on-one, you know, consultation, Mm -hmm. one-on-one engagement, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's, you know, a a, a lecture or a talk or a tweet, you know, the power of Twitter is just fascinating. On a daily basis, I will reach more people on Twitter than I will on a lifetime of medicine. Wow. Yeah, you know, well, I'm, I'm saying yes to you because, okay, you know, we haven't, we haven't caught up. You've got a different following to me. Let's have a message that we can get out there. And whether or not I'm right or wrong, you know, obviously I think I'm more right than wrong. You know, that's called the arrogance of orthopedic surgeons. You know, that's it's inbred. I think we've got a really important public health message about nutrition and health and obesity and diabetes and and life itself. So therefore, as the years have gone by, I'm spending more time in this space having a greater effect than mm-hmm. my one-on-one surgery. I've done foreign aid work, which I think is 
empowering. It's great. Yeah, you went to it. Vanuatu, didn't you? Yeah, I've done that. I did that for several years. Yeah, I did an optometry aid course um, thing there as well. They're a beautiful group of people, aren't they? They're uh, absolutely. And the they're the most warm thing, people. Um, the very first year I did it, I came back going, I wonder if why I did that. I honestly thought, because, you know, sure, I operated on 20 people or so and I've improved the lives of 20 people. But, you know, did I do it for myself as, you know, for self-satisfaction that I've done foreign aid or did I do it for them? And I really struggle with that concept. A lot of people do foreign aid. It's well-intentioned, but are you really making a difference? There's no such thing as altruism. You you always get something back from it. Oh, yeah. So. And, but, and so, you know, was it good for me or was it good for them or, or both ways? Yeah. The following year, I went back and I actually asked the registrar who was there and I said to him, how are you going to reduce this fracture? And he looked me in the eye and he grinned with that, you know, great big Vanuatian smile. Yeah. And he repeated to me word for word what I had taught him the year before. Wow. And then I went, okay, that's it. I'll come back and keep helping. Yeah, nice. Because it's, a great thing. it's not about me. It's about he's learned something. That's what doctor means in Latin, to, to teach. It's not to care for. It's not to operate. It's not to do anything, not to make money, not to any of that. It's to teach. So right. he, he instilled in me with that one smile and response the whole argument of what we're actually doing, which is actually take our message beyond what we can do as individuals, spread the message, spread the education, and see what difference can happen. And you've actually got in some trouble for spending education that some people perceive to be outside your lane of expertise. Can you, oh, yeah, can you tell us? Bit, that, yeah. yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, for, for people that, that haven't heard, can you tell the story about the, the row you had with APRA and, and, and what happened with that? Well, what I've been standing for is now public health policy in WA as of last week. So I'm an orthopaedic surgeon. For many years, I was looking after the complications of diabetes and particularly the foot problems. So every week we'd have a my clinic on a Friday. It used to be called Fetke's F'd Up, uh, yeah, F'd F'd up, up Foot Fet- Friday. F'd Up Fructose-Free Fungating Foot Folly Fridays, right? <laughs> And, That's me. Um. <laughs> and so literally after years of actually realising we're just up against a tsunami of more and more necrotic flesh and dead and dying flesh and diabetic complications. For people that don't know, can you explain why what happens with diabetes and why it affects the feet so badly? Well, that's a whole lecture on YouTube. The, but the long and the short of it, if you have chronically elevated blood glucose, that blood glucose is quite um, toxic to the system. You get blood vessel damage. You get nerve damage. Ultimately, that obstruction of blood vessels, that damage to nerves means you can't feel your toes. They don't heal when they get an ulcer on them. They break down. Ultimately, they need to be partially debrided, then amputated, and then that can go on to a below-knee amputation. And that was turning into a fair chunk of the work you had to do was to that actually was take week. people's feet off. Every it, week you're taking every someone's week, foot off. Every week, without fail, I would be nibbling away at people's feet. And you'd come along to my clinic and you'd just, and you get to know these people because it's not, you know, it's not, look, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this dressing, this cast, this management pathway, but actually now we're losing, now we're going to have to do something. And I I get to know these people. And more importantly, I started realising actually we can do something about it. So my, my battle started when I've got these patients in hospital with out of control infection in their feet and the hospital is serving them three ice creams per day. Right. And I'm going, would you stop? Enough with the ice cream. Explete, you know, expletives there. And they said, no, that's the hospital guidelines. That's the food guidelines for hospital food. 
to give people with diabetes three desserts per day plus high carb sugar loaded morning tea afternoon tea and supper yeah and everyone said you're kidding i said no here it is and i actually presented the national hospital food association on this and i said here are your guidelines this is exactly what you're saying and i said they're not they, they couldn't even believe at a national policy thing that that's with their guidelines now those guidelines still haven't changed so I was the, standing, are the individual hospitals sort of seeing sense and changing them no right wow not, not, at, not at what's being served to the patients. We're still up against this. Wow. And it, it's, a, it's an absolute war zone in, when it comes to that topic. However, so I was advocating, can we, you know, I want my, I want my po- this is seriously what I wanted. I wanted my patients to be given the option of cheese and eggs mm-hmm. and a full-fat yogurt rather than right. low-fat yogurt full of sugar and the breakfast cereals which are full of sugar and, you know, as a snack to be offered a piece of cheese, cheese, eggs, full-fat yogurt, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly dangerous. <laughs> so part of that was I was actually campaigning that the hospital kiosk should not be selling Coca-Cola, yep. soft drink, junk food. When you literally walk in, it's just a cascade of, of, of junk food. The irony was that the hospital kiosk, and I've got, the, you know, the, the, the pink ladies, the volunteers, they're doing the right thing. They're trying to raise money for the hospital. But I approached the CEO of the hospital. I said, can you do something about this? They said, no, we need the pink ladies to keep selling the junk food so we can buy bariatric beds and chairs. And at the yeah, Christmas... they didn't at, see the irony in that? Well, no, he said, we need the money. I said, well, right. we don't need to be advertising. You know, the, 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 again, there was a Christmas raffle where the first prize in the Christmas raffle was a Coca-Cola push bike, which had been given to the hospital by Coca-Cola because of the amount of Coca-Cola sales they'd had that year. It used to be a time in the hospital, you know, 35, 40 years ago, the, the, the volunteer workers would go around a trolley around the wards and sell cigarettes to the patients, all right? they, and there'll be enough people out there who might might just remember that. I can remember it as a student going, you know, I, was, I thought it was crazy, but nonetheless that was the practice. And at, at some point in time we as a health professional worked out that that was a dumb idea to be selling cigarettes to patients so they could smoke on the ward. Mm-hmm. My wife's first job as a nurse, was to empty the ashtrays for the patients on the wards. Yeah, wow. It's a great analogy that I've seen in some of the stuff on your website that you actually, that we haven't done with sugar what we did with what we did with cigarettes yet. We haven't even got close. Not in the ballpark. No. And, and, and one of my patients asked me the other day, she said, what about, you know, cigarettes versus sugar? And which one's worse? So, and I've been a huge anti-smoking campaigner for 35 years. And again, I wouldn't operate on smokers. 30 years ago because, mm-hmm. because of the, the side effects, you know, for elective surgery, major interventional bone graft, spinal surgery. Now, that's now commonplace, but 30-odd years ago, people thought I was a redneck, you know, so I'm still a redneck. I've just moved, you know, down the pathway of sugar. But there was enough evidence to say we shouldn't do that. And now, again, come down the path of diabetes, and that's the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to sugar and excess carbohydrates and poor diet. I took a stand saying we should be reducing that sugar. We shouldn't be selling soft drinks in hospitals. We actually had the upper house here in, in Tasmania, Legislative Council, pass a motion to that effect in 2013 and then sat on you know the Minister's of Health desk for the next several years. Absolutely nothing, still nothing. So we've had a motion passed by the upper house to be reviewed in the lower house, mm. still nothing to get rid of junk food out of the hospitals. In the meantime, you know, we could have been doing this 10 years ago and West Australia are doing that. Victoria's halfway on that pathway. Queensland's sort of on that pathway. 
getting junk food out of the hospitals is, is a bit like shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic though, isn't it? It's like it, it's everywhere else that it is as well, but it's, I guess, well, setting the example. You've got to set an example. Yeah. Like you can still buy cigarettes, but you shouldn't be selling to the patients on the ward. Yeah. Yeah. If you, and if, you know, one of the things I got into trouble with is I used to, in one of my slides, I think to the hospital food industry, I said, hospital food is killing my patients. Right. And then I was report, part of the, you know, I was reported to APRA because I was telling people not to, you know, eat sugar. I was reported to APRA for inappropriately reversing someone's diabetes on national TV. You know, mm-hmm. we got rid of his diabetes. And, you know, you're not allowed to do that. Is that, reported- that, is that message getting through that diabetes isn't necessarily irreversible and, and chronic and going to last forever? Is, is that message getting through? Because yourself and Jason Fung and... Tim Noakes, and there's a lot of people out there saying it, but is it getting heard by the masses? James Mookie was our 2020 Australian of the Year. Mm-hmm. And um, James... He's an ophthalmologist, myself, isn't he? He's an ophthalmologist. Yeah. I've actually become really good friends in the last 12 months. So he's almost communicating on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And James has been able to push that message about the, the fact that it's a reversible condition. It's a condition you can put into remission. Mm-hmm. But she has had a battle. He's been able to get into certain meetings and, and forums that, that I wasn't allowed into because I'm just too much of a troublemaker. You know, I'm embarrassing because I might be right. <laughs> but, you know, so if, you, if you've got type 2 diabetes and you want to get rid of it, work with us, work, you know, take the principles on board and you can get rid of it in a, in a day if you want. And what, what are the principles that you, if say I'm just newly diagnosed type 2 diabetic, what would you tell me, what would your advice be to me? Well, first I'll explain it to you what it is. Love you too. Yeah. So diabetes is the inability of the body to handle the carbohydrate load that you eat. That makes sense. There is no biochemical pathway in the body that requires you to eat carbohydrate, glucose, fructose or sugar. Mm-hmm. Not a single biochemical pathway. The brain, the brain is not dependent on you eating glucose. So if we've got no biochemical pathway, we've got no requirement for it, which is a seasonal thing in fruit normally. Yeah, we've got, and all it is in excess is damaging. Then don't eat it. The analogy is: if you've got a kid with a nut allergy, you don't feed them nuts and then give them medication. Yes. You say eat other food. Yeah. Put other fuel in your body. Don't have an EpiPen with you. Yeah, because your body can make sugar. Can make it can make sugar very easily. There's only three cells in the body that actually require glucose. There are erythrocytes. There are some cells in the in the lens of the eye, mm-hmm. and some cells in the, what's called the loop of Henle in the kidney. Very very small amounts are actually required, right. and the body can manage that quite adequately because people are sick sometimes and don't eat for a few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we can come. We come back to fasting at some point in time. You don't die overnight if you don't eat. No, no I've just I've just had a, a five day retreat where I've had a five day fast, and people are horrified when you tell them about it. But I felt great. My brain worked perfectly well, or as well as it always does. Um, it and actually, arguably works better. Yeah, there's a and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there's a a fair chunk of sugar is actually responsible for some of the deterioration in things like Alzheimer's and dementia. Which I'd love to hear your your take on that as well. This is going to be a long podcast, I think. Um, <laughs> I've got to go to bed sometime. All right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's um, but th- that's another thing that they. I've actually heard diabetes described as type as dementia is described as type three diabetes. Would mm. what's your take on that? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Stephen Canane's done some great work. He's in the US, 
where, again, in diabetes, you get a poor metabolism of glucose in the brain and the parietal lobe up here, parietal and temporal lobe, but they have normal metabolism of ketones. Right. So that you can do that functional MRI and, and, and give that. And so essentially it costs nothing to change the way you eat. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, if your brain, if, if your car's not running properly on one fuel, you'll try the, Well, you'll put the right fuel in your car. You know, people pay more attention to what petrol or diesel they put in their car than, than what we do as humans putting food into our mouths. So the brain has got, you know, it clearly has it's got a, got a, a tribrid em- engine. You know, it can run efficiently on carbohydrates. It's called the Krebs cycle. It can run on protein, healthy fats, and carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. So if you're not going, if you're not running well on your carbohydrate and you don't need it, and it's inflammatory, and it's giving you diabetes, and I've just done a talk you know, that last week for Low Carb International All-Stars on that whole top of the toxic dose of glucose. When you actually don't need it, why don't you just try the alternative fuel? Mm-hmm. And so those people with low, who have got dementia and will arguably throw, go down the pathway of the whole spectrum of mental health issues if your brain's inflamed and it's not running well on glucose and, you know, a diet of 50% carbohydrate, which is a standard Australian diet, why wouldn't you try pathway of trying a ketogenic diet or at least reducing your carbs for a period of two or three months? And particularly in dementia, where someone else is often controlling the food in the house, mm-hmm. it's worth a trial. This has been well studied in, in epilepsy for 100 years. It's the, yeah, it has. It's yeah. the old treatment of epilepsy before drugs. The old treatment of diabetes before the advent of insulin was low carb. It's right. well documented in the 1910s, 1916, 1905 by um, literally it's been well documented as the best advent for management of diabetes. But they've all of a sudden got a drug industry that comes along and says, well, you've got to have your lifestyle, you've got to live as you want, you've got to have your treats, but we'll just medicate you along the way. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? it- no, but it makes a lot of money for someone. It makes a lot of money for the processed food industry. You know, so, you know, look, briefly coming back to me, I took my stand publicly. I was involved in social media. I started lecturing on this. And then within two days of me launching a website, uh, someone working for Coca-Cola came after me. Within a few years, and particularly when I took on my stand in the public health, in, in the public hospital that I was working in, um, I ended up being targeted by the cereal industry, the Dietitians Association, who were in a paid contractual agreement at that time with the cereal industry to actively defend their, the, you know, the benefits of sugar really? and cereal. And so we've got those documents, um, long convoluted pathway of internal emails of the um, and documents from the cereal industry, and there were seven of us targeted for uh, active defence. And I was the only Australian medical doctor on that list. And so that became, and I honestly, when I got reported to APRA over this stuff, you know, for telling my patients not to eat sugar, I honestly thought it was a joke. Yes, so you should have. It's ridiculous. I thought I'd be thrown out and then it just kept on snowballing. And then their expert witness came after me and we couldn't work that out. But their expert (laughs) witness. Who was that? I fell over with Professor Mark Walkhorst. I'll name him. We named him publicly before. Yeah. And Mark Walquist, at that point in time, is a most, one of the most senior nutrition experts in the world. He's an Australian ben, professor of nutrition here in Australia, physician. But at the same time, he was working with Sanitarium as a breakfast cereal company. 
Right. At the same time that we've got these documents saying that I'm for targeting. Yeah, wow. And so, and I'm t- saying to APRA, you know, this this is a stitch-up job. I've done nothing wrong. All I've done is made my patients better. I had my patients' best interests at heart the entire time. I'm basing it on science. Mm-hmm. I've literally presented a thesis on this topic. And ultimate, and went through a couple of Senate inquiries against APRA. And, you know, long and short of it was, I suppose it got down to a point where you say, look, APRA, I'm not going to back off on this. If you really are going to enforce this rule that I'm not allowed to talk, then just deregister me. Otherwise, otherwise, nick off and apologise. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, Senate inquiries, National Ombudsman, several years, several hundred thousand dollars, it ultimately went for a, re- a review board and the review board looked at it and then threw it out within three weeks. You know, common sense finally prevailed, but mm-hmm. not after it had become an How did you standard. handle that? Yourself, because like that's someone's taking away your livelihood, and you know, being a doctor is a big part of you know, your identity when you're a doctor. How did you go personally when when that well, happened? You'd have to find out a bit more about my family history, but I, look, I'm a stubborn bastard. Yeah, I'm getting that picture. I, 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 I knew I was right. More importantly, I knew it was good for my patients. Just yesterday, I had a patient come in. I, well, you know, I call them almost two miracles. You're not allowed to use the word miracle in medicine; could get deregistered again, probably. Um, and literally in a six-week period, she came in and said, I've lost a few kilos of weight. She'd gone low-carb keto. She'd had some complex pain issues. I've lost a few kilos. I've lost all of my pain. My depression has gone. I have wow. clarity of thought. I'm motivated to go forward and back into work. Merry Christmas. I, as, as, as I say, once, you, and I didn't operate on her. All I did is I gave her some advice and said, look, you've got a crap diet here. Why don't you think about eating real food? Just happens to be called keto, mm-hmm. you know. That's what I'm advocating: fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on your culture and environment, avoiding added sugar and processed food. I've just described low carb, healthy fat. I've just described keto, but what I've described is eating fresh, local, seasonal, whole food. It's all she's done. Her life's turned around. I guess you throw the word local in there, and it's a it's a yeah, subtle Ke- one. It's a subtle one, but that makes a difference. There's no wheat farms anywhere near me. No. So how do I eat bread then if, if I'm going to eat local? So it's a really subtle word in that. And you rattled it off quite quickly, yeah, but the local but, is such a key to that. Yeah, so I mean I put patients saying, but isn't fruit good for you? I said, okay, show me the banana plantation in Tasmania. Show me okay. where the apples are on the tree still. Yeah, I'd actually love your take on this because you one of the things you go to war, one of the many things you go to war with is fructose. Can you tell me why fructose is such a, such a, a devil in terms of in your diet, what fruct- just a quick one of what fructose is and why it's so bad for you. <laughs> I mean, every time you open your mouth, you open up Pandora's box, Luke. Okay? <laughs> ah, no, sorry, mate. I'm, I kind of I kind of know some of this stuff, but I want to be able to explain it to people that don't. Yeah, look, uh, look, there's another YouTube lecture on the central. <laughs> I'll put some nutri- links to some of them too. Yeah, nutritional role of inflammation. If I talk, is fruit good or bad for you? Mm-hmm. Um, look, we've, we've, we've lots of people heard about glucose. People have heard about fructose now, which is half of sugar. Mm-hmm. So glucose, fructose together becomes a molecule of, of table sugar, common yep. sugar. All carbohydrates are either glucose or fructose. Complex carbohydrates are just lots of them bundled together. We knew heaps about glucose metabolism, but the definitive description of glucose metabolism was done by a fellow named Luke Tappy, uh, a Swiss uh, biochemist, 
who only presented that in 2011, 2010, 2011. So our understanding of fructose is brand new. I go back to my textbook from medical schools and it goes fructose, fructose 6-phosphate, and then nothing. Right. You know, it's just, oh, it's a bit, but it, it was sort of put to the side as it's a nothing. It's the same as glucose pretty much. Well, no, no it, just wasn't, it, it just wasn't even picked up on the radar. Right. What so happened now in 2011? We that, pardon? And what happened in 2011 with Well, it was study? described definitively. Okay. Uh, Journal of Physiology, and I've got that article. I actually flew all the way to Sydney to hear Look Tappy speak. So I went to a Coca-Cola-sponsored meeting. So Look Tappy had been brought out to Australia and Singapore to actually talk about the fact that fructose by itself was not the cause of obesity, and I agree with him. But he was actually brought out here to dispel the myth that fructose was all bad. I I stood up at this Coca-Cola meeting. It was called an Ilsey meeting, but it's essentially Coca-Cola and it's the sponsored processed food industry trying to make their arguments scientific when it's all just like that. The processed food industry might call low-carb, keto, paleo a little bit of a cult. I can tell you it's nothing as cultish as the cheering and rah-rah that goes on in the Coca-Cola meeting. And I stood up there and asked my question. I said, it's Dr. Gary Fetke from Tasmania. The whole freaking audience turned around. I went, oh, you guys know me. Right. <laughs> How the hell did they let you in the room? I paid my subscription to go to the meeting. Yeah, uh, wow. I was as respectful as I could. They said, you're only last allowed to ask one question. Right. So each session I stood up and I made three statements and then followed by a question. But mm-hmm. And I, I literally, I went all the way to ask Look Tappy one question because he is the world expert. And I caught up with him at lunch, so I pre-warned him that I was going to ask the question. And I said, Professor Tappy, you know, the, you are the person who's described fructose metabolism. Is there a single biochemical pathway in the body that requires us to eat fructose? The chairperson told me I was being, you know, a nuisance. And I said, no, just can you ask the question? And look, Tappy said to me, no. Right. So there was not – I, I literally – so I have that from the horse's mouth. I flew all the way to Sydney. People might say I'm, you know, finicky, but I've been able to go there. There is not a human biochemical pathway in the body that requires us to ingest, eat, glucose, nor fructose. Mm-hmm. So fructose we know a lot about now, and it's got multiple, multiple pathways. Um, there's an aldehyde pathway. So fructose in the liver converts fructose to, to alcohol, right? That's how we ferment fruit and we make into alcohol. You know, fruit, right. grapes, it's the fructose that gets fermented into alcohol. So when you eat a lot of fructose, even a lot of fruit, it goes into the liver and it's producing alcohol. It's producing an aldehyde. That alcohol has all those same effects that alcohol does. and all that sort of stuff. And so, therefore, that um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is now the most common cause of cirrhosis now and liver failure. 8% of 10-year-olds have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. From the, from the fructose? From, shoot, from sugar. Tell me if I've got this right, and I'm not, I'm not sure I have, so I, I'd love your, to push back if I haven't, that you can use glucose in lots and lots of cells in your body. It's obviously not essential, but you can use it. But mm-hmm. you can only metabolize the fructose in the liver. It's virtually always metabolized on first pass, so it gets ingested through the gut, goes up the portal vein, and gets um, metabolized in the liver. A very small amount gets metabolized in the mesentery of the gut, which is the lining that holds oh. the bowel to the to the blood vessels. Okay, got, that may have some theoretical use in triathletes and endurance sport. Tiny. Small amounts metabolized in the testes. I've got a theory about that, but that's I think it may be part of survival and, and fructose when it's available seasonally in nature, mm. which is really only fruit. That's a more fertile time of the year. So you might actually need to stimulate your testes right. to actually make I mean 
Nobody's written about it. I'm trying to work out the only fire, reason. Fire the little fellas up and get them working. Yeah, well, at least make certain they've got plenty of fuel on board for their journey. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, I've got no scientific basis for that. It's just, you know, That's a lovely theory, theory for bouncing around. Um, I don't want to say it's a stimulating conversation, do I? <laughs> no, we could talk about balls all day. <laughs> so there's also another pathway of um, the byproduct of uh, fructose metabolism in, in the liver is a thing called uric acid. Mm-hmm. People might have heard of that with gout. Yep. Uric acid in the tissues has actually got inhibits a thing called uh, what inhibits the production of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a a, a very simple chemical which keeps our blood vessels open. It keeps our brain blood supply going and it is also involved in our immunity. Mm. And when you increase your uric acid, you increase your um, its effect on uh, uh, the uricase. It inhibits uricase which stops nitric oxide production. Right. So when you actually have too much sugar, your blood pressure goes up. You reduce blood, blood, blood supply to your brain, and you reduce and you reduce your immunity. There's good papers on that. So when you reduce your get uric acid, you reduce gout, you reduce your sugar intake, your blood pressure goes down. You get a better control of blood supply to your brain, and your immunity right. improves. And your your inflammation and stuff decreases. And you as reduce well. your inflammation. There's another pathway which is involved in appetite control, and then there's another pathway when the excess fructose gets converted into fat, mm-hmm. which is critical in nature. Now, fructose is absolutely fabulous from an evolutionary aspect, and that's why it drives a whole lot, whole lot of behavioural aspects, drives our hunger. Our dopamine our, pathways and all of that yeah, sort of stuff. Because in nature, fruit is seasonally available, you know, at the end of, end of summer, beginning of autumn, for us to stuff our faces on it to, make, to get fat for winter hibernation. And I mm-hmm. use the example of a possum. A possum will come through and strip a fruit tree bare the night before you want to eat the fruit. Right. So it can get fat for winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it, it's a behavioural thing. Those possums are driven insane to the point that they'll just keep scoffing it down, we'll eat well beyond their capacity, which is guess what we're doing as humans. Yeah. Because yeah. We, don't have a, we don't have an off switch. We've got all these chemicals floating around, primarily driven by fructose, to drive behaviour. Mm-hmm. So that's when I come back to that, is fruit good or bad for you? You know, that talk there. We can go through the biochemistry of fructose in that. And I'm okay if you want to eat fruit. Just make certain it's fresh, local and seasonal. Mm-hmm. Recognise that bananas got more sugar in them, in them than Coca-Cola. Recognise that when you're going to eat fruit, it's going to drive behaviour. You know that. Most people know that. They can't eat one grape. They can't eat one cherry. You can't eat one strawberry. I'm not saying, that, you know, that small amount's going to be inherently terrible for your child. However, when you do eat that fruit, recognise that it's actually going to make you hungry for the next several hours. So I do have some, you know, I, I do have some, you know, blueberries, you know, in a granola mix and double cream, you know, so it's all low carb. And I do have a few berries. But when I have a few berries, I have three. The wild night on the town is I'll have four, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. But that's enough for, to, to just sweeten the whole thing because I couldn't eat a whole bowl of them. It's just too sweet for me now. Yeah, right. And that, but I reckon, so I'll have that at night and then I'll go to bed, you know, whatever after. But I'll know that by the morning, whatever driving behavior of that fructose is gone. Yeah. So it, it essentially recognize what food does to us when we eat it. You know, and it's not inherently as good for us. And, and the thing about Mother Nature, as I, I say, fruit's not as good for us as, as it's advertised to be, either in nature or in a supermarket. And so, you know, once you start realizing, so, 
everything in nutrition is literally a house of cards. Everything I've virtually touched in the last 10, 15 years just turns out to be a house of cards. You know, so when you actually start delving into, okay, why, why, why do we believe or why have we been told that fruit's good for us? When you realize that that was all made up, the term fruit and veg was made up in 1991 in a meeting between the food industry and the American Cancer Association on the West Coast of the US. Wow, it's well, like we've heard it forever. Well, we've got a, a grocery store. We've got a big big fruit and veg you know, place here called Young's Veggie Shed. Free plug, okay? They do great, great food. But I said to them, I said, you're called Young's Veggie Shed. I went down to them. I said, when did you start up? And they said 1987. It's not called Young's Fruit and Veggie Store. And you know, the more mature people of your audience will actually have heard, they went to the green grocer. Yeah, I've heard kids, that. Because there was green vegetables around all year round. And fruit was a seasonally available item. You know, yeah, an right. orange at Christmas was a treat. You know, because you'd get. You know, I know some people who used to get an orange in their Christmas stocking. So you know, it's not just you know, you know, orange juice in in containers and whatever. It's all just marketing. But the term five a day, that's just made up. Zoe Harkin from Wales. You know, her theory is that they held up five fingers and went, "Oh, that's a good number. <laughs> Let's just that's, pluck that out of the air. That, that's handy." You know, there's absolutely no science behind all of this stuff you know and you know that's where our current work is that there's no science behind meats being bad meat does not cause cancer meat does not cause heart disease meat and it's just made up and it's made up by the food industry the processed food industry because of marketing one of your other passions is the environment and you really do push back on on how sustainably grown meat yeah, you know, we actually need the poop, and now one of the the biggest problems we have in the earth at the moment is a, is a lack of topsoil. And Absolutely. Can you can you take us through your 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 view on that and on on meat and its its effect on the environment? The health of the people is determined by the health of the food they eat. The health of the food is determined by the health of the soil. Makes That's sense. it. Yeah, you know, I've just extrapolated one of Roosevelt's Frank, you know, Franklin Roosevelt's mm-hmm. comments there, but I've just expanded it. The health of the people is really dependent on the health of our soil. And our biggest agricultural export is topsoil. You know, it's blown away, it's washed away. So we, the only way we can keep our topsoil is we look after it. We allow when rain does come on to actually to retain that, that moisture. Mm-hmm. Our ability, we are outstripping. Topsoil will regrow tiny, tiny amounts. But if you put, you know, organic matter on the top of it, mulch it down, let it all, the, the, all those insects, all those sentient beings, we can go on about them are actually doing the, a wonderful thing with our soil. Every time we till the soil and we turn it over, we release CO2 into the atmosphere, we destroy the, the, the habitat of sentient beings. But more importantly, we disrupt the microcosm which actually allows water to be retained. And the moment you actually dry your soil out, then all of a sudden the winds and the rains come along and blow it away. There's a great book called Dirt. I mean, I've read several books around this. Great called Dirt called The Erosion of Civilization. Arguably the fall of the Roman Empire was because they outstripped, they, they, they allowed their soil to be eroded. The, 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 middle, uh, the middle East used to be a temperate rainforest until we took away the topsoil. We farmed the topsoil away. Jared Diamond's written some books. He's got a great book. Uh, yeah, but it, I, I'm referring to his one called Collapse. When we outstrip our environment, and I'm I'm a great believer in global health and the environment and whatever, but we've actually got to come at it scientifically in a rational way. When you strip the topsoil, then you lose your your, your production. So there's two parties here at the moment. You have actually an agriculture, 
our food is either animal based or it's plant based. Mm-hmm. Huge, two big you know, topics at the moment. Whether or not we're talking about beef or, you know, or, or pork or chicken versus grains and legumes and vegans and vegetarians, they are the two polarizing topics at the moment. Animal based agriculture gives you complete proteins, complete healthy fats. And if you eat nose to tail, you get all the vitamins and micronutrients you require. Animal based agriculture, if it's done correctly, allows animals to eat grass, which comes from carbon dioxide in the air, and then they poo and wee that nutrient back into the soil and restore. And the only way, for for, for tens of thousands of years since we've had an agricultural sector, animal manure, animal product, has actually been the way that fields have actually been tilled and then cropped. But it's been the animal manure manure that returns the quality of the soil. On the other side of your coin, you've got this enormous processed food industry based plant based agri you know uh, sector which is completely politicized and full of religious ideology and that's a whole other band that we go down yeah. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole we probably won't hit today but that's no. all right but literally but that's where it is if you because if, if there's a myth out there it's really important to work out where it came from mm. that that's that's all I've learned in the last. If anyone wants to look up, look up, look up sanitarium and where that came from, and you'll you'll get a big idea about grains and. Yeah, look up and, Belinda's work on that. Belinda Fetke YouTube. Yeah. I read I read, I read her article on that on on your website today. It was amazing. Animal so plant based agriculture, a incomplete proteins. I'm sorry, vegans, vegetarians. It's incomplete proteins. We're not that easily bioabsorbed. So, incom- very poor fat profile incomplete in vitamins and minerals, uh, full of things called um, gluten and lectins, which you can develop, uh, you know, full-on allergies to. And that's where a lot of your inflammation, particularly the lectins, doesn't it? A lot of inflammation comes from that? Oh, there's a lot of inflammation from that. There's a lot of inflammation from the seed oils, the, right. you know, the vegetable oils, canola oil, polyunsaturated yep. oils. That, 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 this is all called processed food. You know, plant-based processed food is highly inflammatory. On the other side of the coin... Plant-based agriculture takes nutrition from the soil. It doesn't. It, it doesn't restore it. Maybe restore a little bit of nitrogen, but on the whole, it's generally taking nutrition from the soil. It's tilling the soil. It's destroying the habitat of trillions of sentient creatures per paddock. <clears throat> I did a calculation a couple of years ago for a lecture, but in one tablespoon of dirt, there's about seven billion living creatures. Wow. There's about seven billion humans on the planet. But also had there was a, there's about seven billion living creatures in one tablespoon of cow manure. I actually I gave this talk about I was trying to make a point to the Liberal Party here. Actually, I was asked to speak, so I actually took down. I was driving down to Hobart, and on the way I said, "Blue, we've got to stop. I've just got to stop in this cow paddock. <laughs> I've got to go get some poop. I've got to get a fresh lump of manure." <laughs> so it was. <laughs> Had to drive down with the windows open. I literally got a double-bagged, you know, lump of cow manure, which I actually opened up in the middle of this lecture with a, a big tablespoon to make my point. Very visual, quite, you know, sensory. What's he going to do with this? <laughs> I didn't eat it. But, yeah, the, the fact is whenever I hear about sentient beings, and I, I respect that, but if you want to eat and live on this planet, you are going to kill something. You are going to affect a sentient being. Now, I'm not, I'm not anti-vegan. They, they troll me all the time. 
You know, I think vegans are nice people. They're well-intentioned. They're trying to make a difference for their health. They're trying to make a difference for the planet. They've just fallen from the propaganda that's come from the processed food industry and particularly the cereal industry, and you named one of them there as sanitarium. So let's be realistic and say, okay, our soil is critical. There's a great uh, little bit of work that's start, just starting to come out. Like if we literally eat we look at the greenhouse gas emissions related to agricultural practice, which is just completely politicised. Cows eat grass. Grass comes from CO2. It restores organic matter to the soil. Mm -hmm. Plant-based agriculture takes CO2 out, releases it to the atmosphere, doesn't restore anything. I'm sorry, that's just the facts. Anything else is just numbers. I mean, numbers are statistics. <clears throat> But the work that's just coming my way at the moment is let's look at the greenhouse gas based on our nutrient. I think we should all be eating for nutrition, not for calories, not for fuel. We've got so much fuel in our diet. You know, you can eat a pizza and it's got no nutrition. You've got heaps of calories and, you know, an hour after you've eaten the pizza, you want to eat another pizza because yep. you haven't had any nutrition. I, my favourite thing at the moment is super meatballs. I've, right. got my, I've got my the butcher making up a, be, a, fatty, lamb, a fatty beef mince mixed up with lamb liver and lamb heart. Nobody right. likes to eat offal. Yeah, but in, in the meatballs, it tastes all right, does it? Well, it's hidden. You know, you yeah. put in whatever spices, you make it taste whatever you like. They are the most filling meatballs I've ever had. Right. And a lion in the wild will eat the heart, the, the liver, the spleen, the brain, yeah. the fat, and then it will leave the meat for the hyenas. Right. So, you know, I, I've, you know, eating nose to tail, literally getting that highly nutritious food in there. So... If we eat for nutrition, the most effective way of getting your vitamins, minerals, nutritional components is actually eat liver. You know, a tiny little bit of liver has a, a tiny greenhouse gas footprint. Whereas if you take the other end of the spectrum to try and get the same nutritional quality from a cereal, like a grain, it's got a massive environmental footprint. So I'm asking for equality here. Let's not talk about how much water something uses. Let's actually say, what do we need as humans to survive? We need nutrition. Yeah, there was a great study on that in the Second World War when they had you know, a lack of food and stuff that they had to eat a lot more of that offal and stuff that they weren't, weren't eating that much of the time and people actually got healthier. Yeah, and their sugar consumption went down. Their sugar consumption went down and, and they ate those different parts of the cow that were getting left behind in the past and they actually all, and they got healthier as a well. So, Well, th this is about um, being respectful with animal agriculture, using that, not, that non viable land, you know, that, I mean, the vast majority of Australian farmland that's used for you know, animal agriculture is not croppable. Right. We've got, the mo we've got the, that whole argument of environment here in Australia. It's, it's just we should be eating beef because the only thing which actually can survive on our land and roam around is, is cattle and to a lesser degree sheep. Kangaroo? Kangaroo's fine. I'll argue that kangaroo might be a bit lean. Right, okay. But uh, Health-wise, but environmentally it's got to be pretty good. But it, it's, it's part of our culture. It's there. Mm. And we just need, but again, if, rather than just cull it and leave it to, as a carcass, let's actually think about in a respectful fashion and actually start using those organ meats, which are incredibly nutritious. Okay, we, nobody likes to go and have a. So Belinda's banned me from putting kidney into that thing. She said it just tastes too strong. Right. And I respect Belinda. If I don't get, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. She's the only person I really truly fear. Okay. And she's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I've read a lot of her stuff today, and now you should fear her. I don't think I'd like to be on her wrong side either. No, no. I, I, she I'll sounds just, like a very passionate, very smart lady. She's beautiful. Um, 
I, I, I'm very good at investment advice here. I, I, I met her at 16 and I said, I'm going to keep that one. When she was 16, I was 18. So we, we've been around together for, for a while. Like there's a big industry for wallaby uh, on Fl- uh, Flinders Island here. You know, they're culling their wallaby, but they're actually, you know, sending it, Sydney, Melbourne, major industry. You know, that's smart, you know, okay? mm. rather than just culling it because they, they, there's too much there for the grasses. It's about let's actually start using our meat in a respectful way because it's incredibly nutrient-dense and it actually has a low environmental impact. I'm not talking about factory farming and I'm not talking about, you know. Well, I think that's the thing that, that the brush it all gets tarred with, doesn't it? You look at it some does. of these factory farms and, and you can see why they're an environmental disaster, but that's not well, what you're talking about in Australia. Well, again, but it, again, there's so much politics out there. A lot of the feedlot food is actually non-human edible crops so it's not actually fit for human consumption so the, the bio and i think so if our crops are not up to scratch because woolies doesn't like it because or coals doesn't like it because it's not the right shape or whatever a lot of that is going to animal husband the world's third biggest greenhouse gas producer in comparison to countries is food waste right just the rotting food waste just our, our it was the fact that we're not actually eating the food that we actually harvest and the majority of that is actually plant-based again it's just numbers and crunching but let's actually seriously look at our food waste which is massive around the world and maybe let's get smarter with how we move it around because so if we're eating local that's going to have less of that where absolutely you know there's, there's no sense for me to be eating an, an orange based in California on the other side of the planet. But by the same way, we, we're still exporting meat here. There. We're exporting wine to <clears throat> Europe. They, they can make their own, can't they? You know what? Yeah. Um, the food miles, is, you know, that. why don't we talk about the effect of the environment on our food miles, you know, on our packaging? And I'm not, you know, I'm just saying that meat's been over-demonised when it's actually not based on science and it's based on opinion, non-science and religious ideology. Yeah, right. Because I guess with all of those things, if you want to come up with a certain idea, you get a, a bit of a desirability bias. You'll find that you know, someone can tweak the numbers somewhere that makes, you, makes it sound like what you want to hear. Yeah, but I've got nothing to gain here because all I do is lose by opening my mouth, is get hammered. Um, the processed food industry, the cereal industry, to quote them from their own internal emails, cereal sales are down in Australia and New Zealand because of the concepts of low-carbon paleo. Cereal sales are down. These people need to be targeted. It, you know, yes, I'm pro, I'm pro meat because if you stop eating sugar and carbs and processed food, then what am I left with? I'm left with animal based product. I'm I'm left with dairy. I'm left with cheese. I'm left with meat. I'm left with eggs. And guess what? That's what we eat most of the time. You can throw some avocados and some nuts in there as well. And well, it, it, it's interesting. Yeah, so we do eat some nuts. I hit mostly above ground vegetables. I've actually, if you're going to eat nuts, here's here's another one. I we I have. Um, whole nuts here in the house. Mm-hmm. So if you want to eat them, you, you got to crack it open. Crack it open and go through all that manual labour. Quite hard work. Yeah, you know. And the same thing if you want to eat honey. People tell oh, honey is natural. I said, good, go and climb a tree, break into a hive, <laughs> <laughs> suck it out of the thing, and be you know, and be aware that you're going to you know, destroy the hive and it's not going to be there next year because you haven't been respectful of the queen bee and her environment over the winter period. You know, we're just raping and pillaging at our standard food product. I, you know, because I often drift down that religion pathway. And one thing I've realised recently, you know, I quite, quite like this tangent, is to go back and look at Genesis. Right. And you don't have to be particularly religious. You know, whether or not you believe in God or not, or, or that's, that, that, that's up to you. That's fine. Are we talking about snakes offering apples? 
No, well, that, that's the original sin, you know. I actually yeah. won a debate about the fruit thing with that, but against this other fellow, he said, you win, you know. <laughs> right. I said, there it is. God's telling us not to eat fruit. You know, there is original sin. So we go to Adam and Eve and take the story of Cain and Abel, you know, the sons of Cain, mm-hmm. uh, Adam and Eve, Cain yeah. and Abel. Cain killed Abel in a jealous rage. Mm-hmm. Do you know that what that was about? No. Right. Well, Abel was the second son, but he was the shepherd, and he gave an offering of lamb, his first lamb to God. Right. Cain was the farmer who gave his offering to God of fruits of the land, which are the cereals, grains, fruits. Yeah. God favoured Abel. Right. Cain then had a jealous fit of rage, which I still think is the first episode documented of B12, vitamin B12 deficiency. <laughs> of poor judgment who then killed his brother over the offering. So, And the Bible regularly goes through and says we should be eating meat. Right. And I realise that suits my narrative, but it's fascinating that the very first description of what God was favouring us as the best food for us ended up the plant-based person killing the animal-based. And I say that mischief continues to this day. I think it does. I think it does. And um, I love the, I love the work that you're doing. I, I particularly love the way that you give diabetics hope um, oh, the, they the, need it. There are much. It's there. It's such a hard thing for them to negotiate what they have to do in a modern world. And I think you're giving them some great advice on how to do that with it with some of this ketogenic work. So thank you very much for coming on the Reset Podcast. And um, I loved your work, mate. It's been great. It's been lovely talking to you today. Did I look?